John 10, verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So again, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, he who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? In political debates... The focus used to be just on each candidate telling you about themselves. They would give answers to the question, what kind of candidate is this? What kind of public servant would they be? And admittedly, to answer that kind of question well, you need the combination of description, telling who they are, and contrast, who their opponent is, who they are not. I've noticed in more recent debates a third question being added to the mix. What kind of voter are you? Who you are, they imply, is the most important factor in determining who you should vote for. If you're the kind of person who loves your country and your neighbors, you want to vote for me. And if you're the kind of person who likes to kill puppies, you should vote for my opponent. Kidding aside, you can learn something about a leader by the people he attracts and the impact of that leadership on them. In John 10, Jesus continues to teach the crowds of Jews and religious leaders. It may be the same group as in the previous chapters or a different group of similar kinds of people. Either way, they're a group divided about who Jesus is. Some find his teaching incomprehensible. And given his comparison to Abraham and his claims to be God, they believe a demon must have driven him to madness. Others can't get over the fact that he gave sight to a blind man. They're amazed. They just don't know what to think. It's important to say that Jesus' teaching here is not narrative. 
He's going to move quickly between themes and metaphors. The latter verses of this passage aren't trying to explain the earlier ones. They're expanding on the same theme. And that theme is shepherding. But there's nothing linear about Jesus' use of it. Sometimes he's the shepherd. Sometimes he's the door. He uses a combination of metaphors here to teach. To teach about himself, about his opponents, the religious rulers, and also about us, his sheep, the people he's come to save. He uses metaphors from the domain of sheep because these would have been more familiar to his readers than they are to us. Sheep were a part of daily life for this audience. Well, there is one aspect of these metaphors that should be familiar to us, their connection to the Old Testament. Just as before, when Jesus' teaching at the feasts connected his ministry to the Old Testament, so this teaching puts Jesus squarely in the category of promised fulfillment of God. There are lots of places in the Old Testament that use shepherding language as a metaphor for God and for his people. An excellent Greek scholar summarized what we should take away from them. If you kind of add up all of the shepherding language of the Old Testament, you get a few points that are made again and again. First is Yahweh is the shepherd of individuals and uh, uh, the shepherd of Israel and of individual believers. His people are regarded as sheep. Yahweh's the shepherd, we're the sheep. You get that much. Second, he's a very good and a loving shepherd. Third, there are evil shepherds out there. And fourth, when the sheep are forsaken by the evil shepherd, they become prey. And fifth, the great son of David, the Messiah, will be the one shepherd of Israel to reunite the remnant of God's people into one flock. The most descriptive of those Old Testament passages, one very likely in mind when Jesus teaches here, is Ezekiel 34. 34 through 36 has a lot of shepherding language. The Lord reprimands Israel's religious leaders for caring only about themselves and not for the sheep he gave them. And then he says this, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. What is Jesus doing here, the good shepherd, if not fulfilling this passage by proclaiming the gospel? First to the lost sheep of Israel, and then, as we'll get into later, to the sheep that are not of this fold. The Old Testament Testament context for these metaphors is clear, and it is Amazing if you get a chance to go back and read Ezekiel 34 through 36. But less familiar to us is the cultural context. We just don't spend a lot of time around sheep. Shepherding in the ancient Near East was a daily reality for them and something that we see at petting zoos. Jesus' hearers didn't need these metaphors to be explained, but there may be a couple things that help us. The first is what is a sheepfold? In those days, many families would have sheep, but most families didn't have much space for their sheep. And so the sheepfold was a pen where the sheep from several different families would be put together and kept. There was no roof, but they would use stones to build walls around four sides with a gate only on one side. And then the families would pull their money and they would hire a watchman, an under-shepherd, to guard the sheepfold. And he would control who entered and keep the sheep safe 
from predators, making sure that if somebody came to get their sheep, it was the owner of those sheep. And since this was a part of daily life for them, Jesus analogizes the situation to himself and to his opponents and to his people. The analogy tells us a lot, tells us the most about him, the good shepherd. First, from verses 1 through 3, the good shepherd has a rightful claim. A rightful claim. He enters by the door and is welcomed by the gatekeeper, by the under-shepherd. It says only troublemakers would need to avoid the gate to find another way in. They're here to steal sheep or to harm them. If they had a right to the sheep, the under-shepherd would know them and they would simply come in the gate. They have a right to be there. Jesus has nothing to hide. He intends no harm to his sheep. He has legitimate authority over them. The father has given these sheep to him. And so he can walk up to the gate as one who has a rightful claim. The gatekeeper knows him and lets him in to gather and to lead out his sheep. The good shepherd has a rightful claim. Second, verses three through five, the good shepherd leads his sheep He calls his sheep by name. He goes out ahead of them and calls them to follow. See, we're most familiar with the Western form of shepherding, where sheep are driven from behind, often with sheepdogs, where you urge the sheep the direction you want them to go from behind and from beside. But in the Eastern world, even still today, that's not how shepherding works. Shepherds lead their flocks using their voices. They go out in front of the sheep and call to them. The shepherd walks out ahead, calls his sheep, and the sheep who know his voice follow him. If a stranger were to try to call, the sheep would run away. They don't know a stranger. The good shepherd knows his sheep well enough to call them by name. Now, this necessarily reveals that not all of the sheep in this sheepfold belong to him. In the metaphor, Jesus comes to the gate and calls out, and his sheep, who he knows by name and who know his voice, follow. And other sheep, those that do not belong to him, ignore him or run away. And then Jesus starts walking, leading his sheep on the proper path, all the while calling them by name, encouraging them to follow. And being his sheep, that's what they do. He goes before them and they follow obediently. What an amazing picture. We're to go to the word of God as ones who hear the good shepherd calling us forward. The metaphors are interrupted briefly by verse 6. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. The general explanation for this we already know. They're not his sheep. Of course, they don't understand what he's telling them. We've seen this chapter after chapter. Until God gives understanding by faith, people cannot grasp the glorious message of Christ. But there's also a specific element of Jesus' metaphor that confused them. They're familiar with shepherding, so they understand that much. And most of this crowd, Jews and religious rulers, are well familiar with the Old Testament metaphor of Yahweh as shepherd and his people as sheep. What they weren't familiar with, what confused them, 
in part because God revealed it over time, was this when he has brought out all of his own idea. If this sheepfold represents Israel, that means there are two kinds of sheep even within Israel, those who belong to Jesus and those who do not. And this sorting out of the true and the false sheep of Israel wasn't something the religious rulers had spent much time trying or wanting to understand. And so they're confused. Jesus returns to the metaphors, mixing them up now, which is why I say don't try to be linear with this text. In verse 7, we learn third about the shepherd that he alone grants access to true blessing. The good shepherd alone grants access to true blessing. This is life and abundance. And it's in this section that we have the harshest contrast between Jesus and the religious rulers. They are false shepherds. That's why his own sheep do not follow them. Their work does not bless. They do not offer abundant life now, nor eternal life with God. This is because, verse 10, they came to steal and kill and destroy. These religious rulers standing before Jesus now and all false shepherds who come before and after them, they do not act in the sheep's best interest. One pastor wrote, they're more interested in fleecing the sheep than in guiding, nurturing, and guarding them. Go back just one story. The blind man made to see. What a moment that should have been for his religious leaders. For them to exalt with him. To rejoice over his healing and to praise Christ with him. But what did his religious leaders say to him? You were born in utter sin. And you would teach us. It's their interests, not his, and certainly not God's, which are primary Under shepherds who do not serve the good shepherd are always protecting themselves, even when that means blaming and sacrificing the very sheep they're supposed to watch over. And that here we see is the opposite of a faithful shepherd. That is a thief and a murderer. They steal God's glory. They lead people away from God's righteousness and toward their kind of righteousness instead And so they kill and destroy. They lead people to live burdened, joyless lives now. And they lead them away or try to lead them away from eternal life in Christ. It's a horrific contrast between the good shepherd and the false shepherds that claim to serve in his name. That's why he mixes the metaphor in verse 7 and calls himself the door. I told you that a sheepfold has only one true entrance and exit. And so it is with the kingdom of God. The door is Christ. He is the only way in. He is the way, the truth, and the life. It is true that anyone who enters by him will be saved. It is also true that you can only enter by him. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name by which we must be saved. And notice that Christ, this door, doesn't just provide the eternal life of salvation. He provides pasture for his people, even now. The false shepherds lead their people into death 
and slavery. Think about the effect of that kind of shepherding, like from these religious rulers. The people are being led to legalism, to moral slavery, to false hope, and to spiritual death. When their actions bring God's judgment against Israel, it will also lead the people into physical slavery and suffering and death. One author writes, The world still seeks its humanistic political saviors, its Hitlers, Stalins, and Maos. Only too late is it surprised to learn that they came to steal, confiscating personal property to kill, ruthlessly trampling human life underfoot, and to destroy, savaging all that is valuable. And he concludes, it's not the Christian doctrine of heaven that is the myth. It's the humanist dream of utopia. Christ isn't just the only way to eternal life. He's the only shepherd who even now provides his people a life with comfort and security of his sheepfold, and rest and refreshment of his pasture. In the uncertainty and the difficulty of life in this world, safety can be found nowhere else but under the care of the good shepherd. It doesn't mean it's going to all be pleasant. Look at Job. Job's life was filled with tragedy and with heartache and with brokenness. Yet that book makes it clear that not one thing happened to Job beyond what the good shepherd knew would be for his eternal good and the glory of God. Even Satan, that great ruler of this world, eager to bring calamity, to steal, to kill, and destroy, even Satan could not touch Job's life in any way except that which God expressly granted him. The thief comes only to steal and kill and to destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. What it would take to deliver on this promise is the fourth thing we learn about the good shepherd. He lays down his life for the sheep. The word translated good has undertones of our word noble. Christ's goodness is both inherent within him and earned by his actions. As another pastor puts it, over and against the deep self-interest of the religious rulers, he is the noble shepherd. He's worthy to be called good. He's so committed to the good of his sheep, he's willing to die to obtain that life and abundance for them. We would call good a shepherd who's willing to stand in the way of danger, knowing that there may be some risk. But Jesus does not merely risk his life. He lays it down. His sheep are already in great danger. They are slaves to sin and deserving of God's eternal wrath. The death that he will take for them is not accidental. It is deserved. It is inevitable. Except only by his death they can be given new life. In verses 12 and 13, he contrasts this to the work of a hired hand. You can pay attention to, uh, you can pay someone to watch sheep that aren't their own. And you can expect them to pay attention, to be responsible, to not be negligent. 
but you can't expect a hired hand to die for the sheep, much less to lay down his life for them willingly. They're not his. Jesus is no hired hand. In fact, incredibly, he analogizes our relationship with him to his relationship with the Father. His love for the sheep is unfathomable because it's rooted in his love for the Father and the Father's love for him. The kind of intimacy Christ offers us with himself is intimacy that comes through complete submission to and love for the Father, that which Christ himself has. It's a powerful contrast. It's hard to pick up on if you're not paying attention. You get it around the edges. But this is mind-blowingly powerful. The contrast between this love that Jesus has for his sheep, the same kind of love that Father and Son and Spirit have for one another. He has that love for his sheep compared to the lack of love the religious rulers have for theirs. And that contrast exists simply because Jesus is submitted to his father and the Pharisees are not. It's what we saw last week. Considering commitment to biblical principles, we saw that the result of complete submission to the father is always going to be love of God and neighbor. It is inevitably the result. The world's most principled people, if their principles are godly, are the world's godliest people. Christ lays down his life because he loves us, yes. But first, because he loves the Father. He laid down his life and he took it back up because he was doing the Father's will. It was the authority that was given to him. As an aside, there's an important application from this for the Christian life. Because Jesus is saying here that his death, the crucifixion, is the plan and will of his father. It was not an accident of history. It was not a lapse of God's sovereign control. The most unjust and horrific event the world has ever known was the sovereign will of of the Father. In Acts 4, the apostles see that. They see the crucifixion as the fulfillment of Psalm 2. They quote Psalm 2. It's an amazing connection. And they said, For truly in this city there were gathered against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand And your plan had predestined to take place. God's faithful servants, his apostles, looked even at the horrors of the crucifixion from God's perspective and concluded that it must have taken place entirely according to his will. And I'm not saying it's emotionally easy to say. I don't think this was emotionally easy for them to say. 
But we must be able to say the same about the tragedy and adversity that comes into our lives. There is no possibility that it took place outside of the control of a wise and loving God who intends it for our good and his glory. So what was God's good and wise purpose for appointing such terrible shepherds in Israel? These religious rulers. What was his purpose in allowing many of the Jews to reject Israel's Messiah and bring condemnation upon themselves? Jesus gives us one answer in verse 16. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. And this is the fifth. The good shepherd gathers all his sheep into one flock. Not only does he separate true and false Israel in the sheepfold, but he goes to other sheepfolds to find and call out his scattered sheep from among the world. It's not only some of the Jews who belong to Christ, but some of the Gentiles. And according to God's plan, through the Jewish rejection of their Messiah, Christ is offered to the whole world. And this way his sheep from any fold can respond by following his voice by being gathered into his one sheepfold and then living as their shepherd does in obedience to the Father. The Westminster Confession of Faith calls this the gathering and perfecting of the saints. And this is the work of the church in the world. We're supposed to be committed to this church, to the church, and to one another in the church because we know that the good shepherd has gathered us into one fold. It's why it's so important that the sheep not attempt to divide his fold. Paul warned the Corinthians about this in the harshest of terms. He saw the temptation that there would be to divide the fold on the basis of Jew or Greek or slave or free or educated or not, drinker or teetotaler, rich or poor, white or of color, home or public school, sophisticated or good old boy. And then he saw the temptation to attempt to divide the fold by prioritizing any of those distinctions as if one is greater than another. It's not our fold to divide. It's Christ's. All who hear his voice and follow must be welcomed and loved and encouraged in obedience. These crowds are divided because some hear and know his voice, or at least are beginning to, and some do not. And the religious rulers love to divide the people. They love to divide themselves from the people. They make divisions on the basis of just about everything except genuine faith. But Jesus, the good shepherd, And his sheep, they're different. He makes us different when he plants faith in our heart and buries the old man in death with him and raises us up to new life. Those differences with the world, the ways that we within the one fold of Christ are different from those who are not in Christ 
Those differences are what should increase as we grow by grace. That's the goodness that is the fruit of the Spirit. We become more and more good as the shepherd is good. Each trait that marks out Christ's sheep as different is an area for us to focus on for growth in our life. It's not overstating it to say that growth in these traits is the aim of the Christian life. It's what we're supposed to be doing. And I see four in the text. You are different from the world because God revealed himself to you in Christ. He knows his own and his own know him. Is your knowledge of God in Christ growing? Through his word, through the worship of him, your awareness and knowledge of who God is should be growing over time. You are different from the world because God also raised you to the new life of obedience. It says he goes before them and the sheep follow. We study Christ's likeness. But do we study it in order to apply it in our own lives? Or for some other reason? Are we studying it so that we can be faster to follow the good shepherd? To take more delight in doing what our Savior does? You are different from the world because God has given you the power of discernment. It says the sheep follow him for they know his voice, but a stranger they will not follow. They know the difference between their shepherd and the world. One reformer called this our ability to discriminate between the truth of God and the false inventions of men. Are you growing in discernment? Do you know by what you hear whether or not the good shepherd is the one who's speaking? And finally, you are different from the world because you love the flock of God. There is one flock, one shepherd, and one attitude toward the sheep. Love. Yes, that love may require warning against false teachers, correction of sin, encouragement in righteousness, but it must be love because it comes from the Father to the Son and from the Son to us. And so it must go from your shepherds to you and from you to one another. It must go out in love because it is the love which comes from the Father. And because... He's not just the shepherd. He's the good shepherd. And we're the sheep of his flock. We're the ones that are following his voice, the voice that calls us by name, the voice that we know to be his. So let's glorify God for his goodness and for his goodness to us in Christ. To God be all the glory. And let's follow. Let's follow the voice of the shepherd, for he is good.